الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Before we continue with our class on tafsir I want to step back to what we covered last week on two points insha'Allah ta'ala One is a bit of additional information and the second point is a point of clarification or maybe even just expanding a little bit on something that a lot of people found difficult to understand. So as regards the additional information, I didn't mention or I wanted to mention or clarify further with regard to the statement of Allah Maliki Yawmiddin, or as we said, Maliki Yawmiddin, two styles, different styles of reciting the Quran. One of the things we can take from this is the power and might of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We mentioned the dominion of Allah azza wa jal and we mentioned his control over the heavens and the earth and we mentioned the fact that everyone who owns anything in the heavens and the earth only does so because Allah azza wa jal gave it to them out of his dominion. And when he gave it to them, it didn't decrease his dominion by anything except like the needle that is dipped into the sea. And of course, when you dip a needle or a pin into the sea, does the sea decrease in volume of water? No, doesn't decrease in anything. But it also indicates al-qudra. It indicates power that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-qadir, the all-powerful, muqtadir the one with almighty power. Because this is part of also the root, the meme and the lamb and the, and the calf. So this meme and lamb and calf also indicates power as well and might. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is almighty. And that is another reason to fear Allah azza wa jal. Now, it's on the topic of fear that I want to make a little bit of a clarification. Perhaps we can say a correction. Because... We mentioned the issue of fear and death. And this confused a lot of people and probably the reason it confused them is I didn't explain it very well. So what I decided to do is because I saw two, three people at least coming with questions on the topic of how you respond at the moment of death with fear and hope. I want to go back and read you something that was written by uh, Sheikh Dr. Khalid al-Sabt. He said... And this is directly quoted from his website, but he has a very nice discussion on this topic. Under the topic of the hadith, لا يموتن أحدكم إلا وهو يحسن الظن بالله. The hadith is in Sahih Muslim. Let not one of you die except that he is thinking the best possible thoughts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the Shaykh went on to mention the difference of opinion among the scholars with regard to fear and hope. And the first thing that he mentioned is, some of the scholars said, when a person is in a situation of as al 
Some of the scholars said when someone is feeling they're in a state of strength and health and things are working well for them, things are working out for them, that in that particular situation, the person should have an increase in fear. They should have more fear than hope. Fear should be predominant in the situation where someone is feeling well, healthy, things are going well for them, they're enjoying themselves. At this time, their, their fear of Allah should be predominant without losing hope completely. He then mentioned the same opinion the other way around as it relates to death. That at the moment of death, as death approaches, there are some of the scholars who said that the predominant emotion here should be hope. Because of this hadith, لا يموتن أحدكم إلا وهو يحسن الظن بالله. Let not one of you die except that he has the best possible thoughts of Allah And the Shaykh mentioned the disagreement among this and the hadith regarding or some of the athar regarding the Sahaba and how they mentioned their fear of Allah at the time of death. So he mentioned this is a mas'ala which there is disagreement among the scholars in and the scholars had different ways of looking at it. And then he said, and among the people of knowledge are those who say it is the right thing to do is always to be equal in fear and hope, regardless of whether you are in good health or on death's door. So some of the scholars, they said, you never go away from being equal in the two. Even if you are on death's door, or if you are in the best of health and happiness, you always have an equal measure of fear and hope. This is another opinion from among the scholars. But uh, what appears to be correct here, and the Shaykh said something important, he said, He said, to take this properly, the discussion here is on which of them is predominant and not on one of them being absolute zero. It's a matter of which of them is predominant and which of them is the overriding emotion at the time. So it seems to me from the discussion, and Allah knows best, that there are times where you should have one of those two which is predominant and perhaps even so predominant that it is the, it is the main thing that you are focusing on. So particularly when you, one of these, or we'll give two examples. One of these examples is when you personally see that you have too much of one of them and it's causing you harm. So for example, you feel so relaxed about Yawm Al-Qiyamah and about dying and about the grave. Alhamdulillah, nothing to worry about. At that time, I think it is appropriate that you don't try and have this sort of equal balance but that you make a distinct effort to, to have an increase in fear at that time and really to, to terrify yourself and make yourself feel scared by reading the ahadith that terrify a person, like the hadith of the person who does the actions of the people of Jannah until there is nothing between them and Jannah but the length of a forearm. Then the decree of Allah, what Allah has written for them, that person overtakes them and they go to Jahannam. These kind of things that make you scared. Perhaps a person would speak a word and that single word that he thought nothing about would take him into the depths of Jahannam 70 years deep because of a word that he said he never thought, he never even thought of it. He doesn't even remember it. And it takes him 70 years into Jahannam.
these kind of ahadith and you feel yourself like that. But when you feel yourself down and you feel yourself low and you start to feel like, I just don't feel like I can do it. I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not, you know, I'm trying to learn and I'm not learning and I'm trying to practice and I'm trying to pray, but I keep missing. And you just start, you know, you just find yourself getting down and depressed and maybe a little bit of that despair kind of feeling or extreme sadness, then in this time you should overly emphasize hope. You should overly emphasize hope. Because at this time what you're trying to do is to bring yourself back up to a balance. But it seems to me, and Allah knows best, that at the moment of death, if we gather together all of the ahadith, then perhaps the best way that we can gather these ahadith and these athar is to say that fear should not be absent, but that it should not be your predominant emotion. The thing that is ahead of you and the thing that is the most that you're focusing on at the moment of death is your hope in Allah and your husn of dhan, thinking good of Allah and expecting Allah's forgiveness and Allah's paradise and Allah to make it easy for you because of the hadith, let not one of you die except that he think he is thinking the best of Allah. But that doesn't mean that you have zero fear at all because you still remember the punishment, you remember the hellfire and so on, but it's not your predominant emotion at that time because as we said, as it comes to the point where you can no longer do good deeds, you can no longer, you no longer have sort of extra prayers to pray or extra istighfar to make and so on, then at that point, what becomes more important is your good thoughts of Allah. But that doesn't mean that your fear is absolutely zero or absolutely absent. And that's why the Shaykh said, The discussion among the scholars here is one of which one should be predominant, not that the other one is totally zero and it has no nothing at all. Maybe that is, inshallah, clearer than what we explained last week. And hopefully that would explain. But also to explain to people that it's not a matter the scholars agreed upon unanimously. Among the scholars are those who said, no, the two should be equal at all times, no matter what your condition, no matter what your condition is. We can now continue, inshaAllah ta'ala, with the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُ وَإِيَّاكَ First of all, this word, إِيَّاكَ, it means you. It means you. But normally in Arabic, we don't use typically with a verb like that. We wouldn't use إِيَّاكَ. We would just take the calf and put it on the end of the word. So why do we not say na'buduka wa nasta'inuka? Na'buduka wa nasta'inuka. Why do we say iyyaka na'bud wa iyyaka nasta'in? Here when we separate this calf and we put it in front of the word like that, what it does is it gives us the meaning of al-hasr. It gives us the meaning of only. The meaning that this is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So to give you an example, and it's usually, you know, just a, a, a light-hearted example outside of the Quran. If you said to your wife one day, I love you. 
But before you used to say to her, Iyaki uhib. She should say to you, Who is the other woman? Because Iyak, you alone. I don't, nobody else. Iyak, you alone. But if you said to somebody, Uhibbuka, I love you, it doesn't you, I love you and you and you and you and you. You know, there is no, there is no limitation put on that. But when you say, Iyaka, you alone. So when we say, Iyaka na'bud, you alone, O oh Allah, you alone we worship. Wa Iyaka nasta'een, and you alone we seek for help, or we seek help from. So here we have Iyaka, which means alone, and it cancels out everything else. So if we say, Iyaka na'bud, this is effectively a, uh, what's the word, like an example or another way of expressing La ilaha illallah. Iyaka na'bud. You alone we worship. We worship Allah and we don't worship anyone except Allah. Iyaka na'bud. So the next question we have to ask ourselves is what is na'bud? Na'bud is the verb which means we worship. And it comes from the Arabic word ibadah, or the Arabic word ibadah comes from it, depending on whether you think words come from verbs or nouns come from one or the other way around. In any case, the noun is ibadah, worship. So we have to ask ourselves, what is ibadah? Why do we have to know what is ibadah? Because if we said to Allah, ibadah is only for you, O Allah. Ibadah is only for you and nobody else. So if we don't know what ibadah is, we might get ourselves into trouble by doing something that is ibadah and doing it to other than Allah. So we need to know what is ibadah so that when we say, Oh Allah, ibadah is only for you. Our ibadah is only for you. Then we know what ibadah is. So first of all, the essence of ibadah, what's the, what's the, what really makes ibadah ibadah? We call it worship, but what makes an act of worship an act of worship? The scholars, they say, and among them who said this, Imam Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, and Shaykh Nathaymin rahimahullah ta'ala mentions it in his tafsir and a number of others, that the essence of ibadah is complete uh, humility and complete love. This is the essence of ibadah. Kamal al-dhul, complete humility and completely lowering yourself before Allah Azza wa And if you want an example of that, think of the sajda. The most noble part of your body, your face, your forehead, you know, the, the place behind which is your mind, you know, your, your expressions, your personality, the way you behave. The face is the most noble part of the person. And you take your face and you rub it in the dust before Allah. This is a dhul. You're lowering yourself, making yourself lowly, showing your humility, your desperation, your need before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you're not doing so 
simply because of fear alone. That, but it is the love of Allah, complete love for Allah, a willingness to do anything that Allah tells you. And that nothing and nobody ever is to given preference or precedence over Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And on top of that, completely lowering yourself. So lowering yourself and being lowly and in a state of humiliation, a state of desperation, a state of extreme need and displaying that, that nature before Allah with complete love. That is the essence of what ibadah is. That's the core of what worship is. But that doesn't give us a, a, a really strong definition that we can kind of rely upon. It just gives us the, the nature of worship. The nature of worship is complete submission, complete humility and complete love. And complete love brings about complete submission. Because the complete love that you have for Allah is what makes you utterly and totally submissive to Allah. If someone ever said to you that, you know, I will give you the dunya and everything that is in it, but you have to give up Jannah. Not, not one of you would take that. Not one of you would take it. Bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, not one of you would take it. Because of that utmost and that that love of Allah that transcends all other kinds of love. And it doesn't resemble any other kind of love. Because if you think the love you have for your parents, for your friends, your spouse, it's not that kind of love. It's not that kind of ultimate and unrestricted and absolute love. It's a kind of love that, you know, it's a love of the dunya. It's a love because of who they are, what they've done for you, and because of, you know, the relationships that exist between you. And it's a limited kind of love. But the love that is for Allah Azza wa Jal is unrestricted and unlimited and absolute. And it's different. But what is ibadah in a real... So how do we understand what falls under ibadah? One of the best definitions is that ibadah is ismun jami'un likulli ma yuhibbuhu Allah wa yardah min al-aqwal wal-a'mal that it is a comprehensive term. When we say comprehensive term, what do we mean? We mean something that lots of things go into it. It's not just one thing. It's not just sajda. It's not just prayer. It's not just dua. It's not just fear and hope. It's not just sacrifice. It's not just sincerity. It's lots of things. For everything that Allah loves and is pleased with. Because Allah commands in the Quran what He loves and is pleased with. Allah doesn't command you to do anything that He doesn't love, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah doesn't command you to do anything that He doesn't love. Everything that Allah commands you to do in the Quran from His Shara'i commands, his commands that form the, the, you know, the wajib and the mustahab. All of that is what Allah loves and is pleased with. Whether statements or actions. So it could be a statement or an action. And statements and actions are not just things you do with your hands and your tongue. Even your heart has statements and actions. 
So in other words, it could be one of five things. It could be a statement of the heart. What's a statement of the heart? What's a statement of the heart? A statement of the heart is your belief. Something you believe in. It's like my mission statement, you know, like when the company, the corporate offices, they have our mission statement, yeah? Your mission statement that you have in your heart, you know, what you believe in about Allah and your purpose in life and, you know, the core beliefs you have about Allah and about His prophets, His angels, His books and so on. These core beliefs that you have, these are statements of your heart. And then there are actions of the heart, things your heart does, like love, loving Allah, fearing Allah, hoping in Allah, having sincerity. All of these are actions that your heart does. Then there is the statement of the tongue. The statement of the tongue is where you show your belief that is in your heart with your tongue by saying, La ilaha illallah. Muhammadur Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam That is a statement that you make With your tongue And it reflects the statements of the heart And then there are actions you do with your tongue Like dhikr And dua and reciting the Quran These are actions That you do with your tongue And then there are actions of the limbs Actions of the limbs like giving charity, like performing the Hajj. And there are some acts of worship that comprise of all five, like the Salah. And that's one of the virtues of the prayer, that it comprises of all of them. Your fundamental belief in your heart and your khushu' your, your sort of the stillness of the heart in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your fear of Allah, you standing before Allah, your consciousness of Allah, and you witness your faith on your tongue during your salah, you say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, and you remember Allah by reciting the Quran and your limbs move up and down. So salah is a complete ibadah that takes place in all of the realms of ibadah, all of the, the possible Places where ibadah takes place But ibadah is something that is done with The heart And the tongue and the limbs Whether as we said It is open or hidden Meaning whether it's something you do Which is visible or invisible What's an example of visible ibadah? Visible ibadah giving sadaqah Performing your prayer Going to umrah These are visible ibadat Ibadat zahira, they're visible. The invisible ibadah like your niyyah is invisible, right? Your sincerity, your ikhlas, your love and fear and hope in Allah, these are invisible ibadat. All of them are for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. All of them are for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. There's another aspect of ibadah which is really important to bear in mind and, and the reason I mention it is there is a lot of, or there are a lot of, there's a movement in our time among certain people to redefine ibadah. 
And it's not a new movement, to be honest. It has new faces every now and again. Somebody else sells their soul and you know, decides to propagate this to someone. But it's an old problem with new faces. And that is redefining ibadah to make it okay to give off certain types of ibadah to other than Allah. And it's really important, therefore, that you're really comfortable with what ibadah is and how to define what ibadah is and what ibadah isn't. So there is a third thing that will help you. We talked about complete submission and complete humility and complete love. And we also talked about everything that Allah loves and is pleased with from the actions that, and the statements, whether internal or external. We covered all of that, the actions and the statements of the heart, the actions and statements of the tongue, and the actions of the limbs, whether it's visible or invisible. There is another aspect to ibadah, which is that the essence of ibadah is doing something because Allah told you and commanded you to do it, whether or not you understand the reasoning or the detail behind it. And that's important. That's important. Many, many times we seek to find out why, you know, like why, why is dhuhr for raka'at? And why is it when I make wudu, and then for example, if a person is making wudu and then they, they break their wudu and then they start washing their hands again, why is that? When their hands are already wet. Why is it if I've just washed my hands and then I forgot to wash my feet and I go back again, I start washing my hands again. What's, why is that? Why is it seven times around the Kaaba? The reality is that ibadah is what you do, commanded by Allah, even when you don't understand, even when you don't have all of the answers for why you do it like that. The greatest reason you do it like that is because Allah commanded you and you have submitted to Allah You alone we worship. Therefore, it is impossible in Islam and absolutely prohibited for you to divert any act of worship to other than Allah Allah said, وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ and you alone we seek help from. Nesta'in comes from the word isti'ana. And isti'ana, whenever you get an Arabic word that starts ista' like that, ista' like that, ista' means, usually means seeking something, asking for something. Whenever you get those Arabic words, that start ista, usually it means, not always, but usually it means seeking something. So isti'ana means seeking al-awn, seeking help. Now let me ask you a question. Is seeking help from Allah a kind of worship based on what we said? We all agreed, yeah? We're all happy that seeking help from Allah is an act of worship. Then why mention it after saying iyaka na'bud? Why not just suffice with there has to be a reason why 
there is a specific kind of worship mentioned after the general. So like they say, أطف الخاص على العام or ذكر الخاص بعد العام that first of all Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned the general worship and then he mentioned the specific. That happens a lot in the Quran and that will help you when you're reading the Quran to understand the tafsir that sometimes Allah mentions something general then mentions something specific. مَنْ كَانَ عَدُوًّا لِلَّهِ وَمَلَائِكَتِهِ وَرُسُلِهِ وَجِبْرِيلَ وَمِيكَالِ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ عَدُوٌ لِلْكَافِرِينَ Whoever is an enemy to Allah and his angels and his messengers and Jibreel and Mikal. Is Jibreel not an angel? Jibreel is an angel. Is Jibreel not a messenger in the linguistic sense of the word? Jibreel is a messenger in the linguistic sense of the word. Mikael is an angel. So don't be worried or don't be confused. If you're reading the Quran and you see that Allah mentions something and then mentions examples of it afterwards in the same sentence. So here we have the general which is worship and we have the specific which is seeking help. So there has to be a reason because we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't mention things without any reason. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned isti'ana here for a number of reasons but I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. The one that Imam Sa'di mentions rahimahullah ta'ala is that our need of seeking help from Allah in order to worship Him. It's like saying, Oh Allah, and without your help, I will not be able to worship you. You alone we worship, and without asking your help, I will not be able to worship you. That's one reason. Another reason is the frequency with which people fall into seeking help from other than Allah. But here we have to stop and ask ourselves about seeking help. Because seeking help in reality is not of one ruling. There are many rulings related to seeking help. First of all, let's divide seeking help into two. Because this will help us to understand in a way that is, will, will stop us inshallah ta'ala from getting confused. So if we divide seeking help into two, and we say that there is a kind of seeking help which is unquestionably and undoubtedly something that you would only seek from Allah Azza wa And there is a kind of seeking help which you could potentially or possibly seek from others. As for the seeking help which is for Allah alone unquestionably, then this comes under the issue of what they call tafweed al-amr ilallah. So the first is tafweed al-amr ilallah. Leaving things to Allah, like believing that Allah is the only one ultimately that will help you and putting your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That kind of seeking help, we have no doubt about whatsoever that it is absolutely for Allah Azza wa Jal. For us to place our trust and reliance and dependence. Dependence is a good word. So maybe we can call this one the seeking help of dependence. That dependence and seeking help there, that is only for Allah Azza wa Jal. Then there is the normal kind of seeking help. And here we have 
different, we can branch it off into two as well. Seeking help from someone in something that they are able to do. Seeking help from someone in something they're able to do. And usually the scholars mention on this a living person. And he's seeking help from a person who is in front of you in something they are able to do. Akhi, will you help me to move this table, please? That's an example of me asking someone that person is alive and healthy and well and able to do something they are able to do. But when I start to ask someone for something, and I ask them for something that is only from the things that only Allah Azza wa can do, or I ask them for something after they've passed away, like asking help from the dead and so on, then again we're falling back into shirk. So we have to be careful in two ways. Number one, we have to be extremely careful that our trust and reliance and dependence is upon Allah. And we have to be careful that the things that are unique for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we only ask from Allah. The types of help that are unique from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like asking Allah for Jannah, like asking Allah for children, like asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring relief to your, dis for your, for, to your distress and so on. And if we ask people, we only ask people for what they are able to do. People who are, we don't ask people in the unseen, we don't make dua to the dead. We ask people for what they are able to do, what is within their normal abilities that Allah has given them. But even that, even that is something that should not be done frequently or should not be overdone. It should not be overdone, this asking of people. Because you ask of people until you stop doing things for yourself. And you stop trying and working hard for yourself. And also you stop asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because of your dependence on other people. So you see somebody in debt and he's asking people for money. Well, money is within their ability, right? He's asking someone who has money for money. That's within their ability. But he asks and he asks and he asks until, number one, he becomes lazy and he stops working for himself. And if he continues, it may reach the level where he no longer asks Allah. He no longer makes dua to Allah because all he knows is that when I get problems financially, I just go to the people and I put out my hand and somebody will give me. So it's important that even in this type of permissible isti'ana that what we do is, first of all, we never neglect asking Allah first and people second. This is in the things that they are able to do. We realize those people are only a sabab, they're a cause for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless me. They're not the, the ones that bless me. And number two, we avoid being dependent on people. As a Muslim, your greatest dependency, your dependency should be upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not upon, not upon the people. And you should not be a person who's known for asking people for things. Rather be a person who doesn't look at what's in the hands of others.
And this is a reason to be from the 70,000 who enter Jannah Without any account and any punishment One of the things that, this is, that is covered within this Is that you are not a person that is dependent And asking of other people Even in the things that they are able to do But you try as much as possible to ask Allah Azza wa Jal and Allah alone Even in the things that you're allowed to ask other people And when you have to ask for some things And which of us is there who doesn't have to ask sometimes for something Then there is inshallah ta'ala no harm If you're asking someone for something That they are able to do And is within their abilities that they have And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best at this point, I want us to remember the hadith of Abi Huraira in Sahih Muslim. I divided the prayer between me and my servant into two halves. If my servant says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Qala Allahu Ta'ala, Hamadani Abdi, my servant has praised me by saying, Alhamdulillah. When the servant recites Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Athna alayya abdi, my, my servant has glorified my praises. When the servant recites Maliki Yawmiddin, Allah Azza wa Jal says, Majjadani Abdi, my servant has glorified me. When the servant says, Allah says, This is between me and my servant, Nisfain. Half of it is for me, and half of it is for my servant. What does this also tell us about the words? It tells us that they are implicit, they're an implicit dua. You're effectively saying, I'm asking for your help, O oh Allah. There's a dua in there. It's the first time that you asked for something for yourself. You praised Allah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. Maliki Yawmiddin. Iyaka Na'bud. You praised Allah. Wa iyaka nasta'een. Here, you implicitly, I implicitly means you didn't openly and obviously ask Allah, but in a subtle way you asked Allah. Meaning, oh Allah, if you're the only one that can help me, then help me. Then help me. So that is why Allah Azza wa Jal said that this is between me and my servant in half. Half of it is for me and half of it is for them. وَلِعَبْدِ مَا سَأَلْ And my servant will have what he asked for. And then you say, اِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ Guide us to the straight path. Ihdina. There are two types of hidayah, two types of guidance. There is the guidance of a tawfiq, of success. And the guidance of success can only come from Allah. And then there is the guidance of irshad. Hidayatul Irshad Somebody pointing you in the right direction And guiding you 
you know, guide me the right, the right way to go. And this comes from Allah and it comes from others besides Allah Azza wa Jal. And that is why when Allah Azza wa Jal said to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتْ You don't guide who you love. The guidance here is the guidance of tawfiq, the guidance of the success to be able to take Islam and become a Muslim. But when Allah Azza wa Jal said to the Prophet ﷺ that he is a guide, Hadith, he's a guide. In another ayah of the Quran, Allah Azza wa Jal addressed the Prophet ﷺ and he called him a guide. This is the guidance of Al-Irshad. Pointing and, and showing the way. This is the way. This is the path. Will you take the path or not? That is from Allah. I can show you the path, but only Allah Azza wa Jal can give you the ability to walk upon it. So here, which kind of guidance are we asking for? Ihdina sirat al-mustaqim. Sheikh Ibn Thaymeen rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir, he said, both. And this is why we don't say ihdina lissirat al-mustaqim with a lamb. We don't put the lamb in there. Because we hear that the guidance is universal. That, oh Allah, show me the direction of the path and give me the ability to walk upon the path. Ihdina. Ihdina sirat al-mustaqim. I've got a little bit of uh, homework for you guys. Small, it's very small, inshallah ta'ala. I want you to try and look up and research for me why this part of Surah Al-Fatiha إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُ وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ إِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ is in the plural. Why do we not say إِيَّاكَ أَعْبُدْ You alone I worship وَإِيَّاكَ أَسْتَعِينَ And you alone I ask for help إِهْدِنِي Guide me to the Sirat Al-Mustaqeem. Why is it we and we and we? Why the plural and why not the singular? Have a little look, try and find out. I'll tell you what I have researched next lesson, inshallah ta'ala. Let me see how many points. We should at least get two points, if not three, out of it. Two or three reasons why. Allah Azza wa Jal says, Ihdina and not Ihdini, guide me, just me. Whereas generally, you would think it would be I because we is quite, you know, quite, uh, what's the word? It, it's less humble, right? Guide us. Why would it be no guide me? Oh Allah, guide me. It's more humble, right? So why guide us? Why us here? If the, it's a dua, you're begging Allah, you're, you're pleading with Allah. So why use a term that generally is a term of pride and a term of, you know, guide us? We. Why not say I, if I is more humble and I is more lowly? So have a think about it, have a look into it, see if you can find in some of the books of tafsir why it says we. Come up with more, two or three reasons, you should at least get two inshallah. And then let me know what you found, inshallah ta'ala, we'll ask at the beginning of the class, in the next class I'll tell you what I have and we'll see if we have anything different inshallah. As-sirat, there are some different qiraat of as-sirat. It's read with a sod and a scene. 
and a sod and a zai halfway between the two. So it's read sirat with a sod and sirat with a seen and sirat, if I can try and do it properly, sirat, but halfway between a sod and a zai. Between a sod and a zed. Zirat. All three are from the qira'at of this, of sirat, wherever it comes in the Qur'an. Ihdina sirat al-mustaqim. A sirat is a path. A tariq. It's a path. And it's called mustaqim, which means one that has istiqama, it is straight. And the opposite of mustaqim is mu'waj, like bendy or deviating, going off to the left and the right, or bending off, curving off to the left and the right. So the sirat of Allah Azza wa Jal is mustaqim. It is siratun mustaqim. It's mustaqim because it's straight in itself. The Prophet ﷺ, he told us, تَرَكْتُكُمْ عَلَى الْبَيْضَةِ وَعَلَى نَحْوِ الْبَيْضَةِ لَيْلُهَا كَنَهَارِهَا لَا يَزِيغُ عِنْهَا إِلَّا هَالِكِ I have left you on a straight path. It's night is like it's day. Nobody deviates from it except that he is destroyed. It's a clear, straight path. And it's also called mustaqim because it is the path of the people who are mustaqim. The people who are upright. Those people who say our Lord is Allah and then they are upright. They're straight. They stand up straight. So al-istiqama in the Arabic language is al-istiwa wal-i'tidal. It is to be straight and upright. That's what mustaqim means. To be straight, to be upright. So this sirat is mustaqim in itself. Itself it is mustaqim, it's straight. It doesn't have any left or right or any bends or curves. It's clear and easy to follow. And it is also a sirat which makes, which the people on it are upright, are mustaqim. The people on it are mustaqim. And maybe I will, if I can remember to link in the video, I will try to remember to link like maybe a lecture about istiqama, about being upright as a Muslim, because we don't have time in the lecture to go into what it means to be upright as a Muslim. But in general, we're gonna cover certain things. Being upright as a Muslim requires staying within the limits of Allah, the hudud of Allah Tilka hududullah. These are the limits of Allah. So one of the things we know about the sirat is that the sirat has limits. And if you go outside of the limit, you go off the path and you go onto the side of the path, that's where you deviate. And that's where the shaitan waits to take you away from the straight path. From the, path, from the ways or the important points around being mustaqim is not deviating. And there are shayateen on the corners of the path calling you to deviate 
from this mustaqim, this straight path. And there is a hadith in which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and I'll briefly describe it. He said, Allahu mathalan siratan mustaqima. Allah gave you the example of a straight path. When you enter the path, there is a gate. And the path, it has two walls on either side. And in the walls are doorways and over the doorways are curtains hanging down. When you enter the path, a caller from the gate cries out, O servants of Allah, enter Allah's straight path and do not deviate. Don't go left, don't go right. And when you're about to lift up one of those curtains, a voice cries out, O servant of Allah, la taftah, don't open it. For if you open it, you will surely enter it. The walls are the limits of Allah. The doorways lead to what Allah made haram. The caller at the gate is the book of Allah. The Quran is what calls out to you, follow the sirat al-mustaqim. That's what the Quran calls out to you. And the caller that calls out to you when you lift the curtain to go to the haram is the warning system, the warning sign. Al-wa'id fi qalbi kulli muslim in the heart of every muslim. So this tells us that once you deviate from that straight path, either onto another path, the path of the shayateen, وَأَنَّ هَذَا صِرَاطِي مُسْتَقِيمًا فَاتَّبِعُوهُ وَلَا تَتَّبِعُ السُّبُلْ فَتَفَرَّقَ بِكُمْ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ Surah Al-An'am This is Allah's straight path. So follow it and don't follow the other paths that go on the side. Because they will take you away from and separate you away from Allah's straight path. So this is the example when the Prophet drew a straight line and he drew lines coming off on the side. Allah's straight path. And on the corner there are shayateen that call you. They tell you, Akhi, there's a shortcut here. It will get you quicker. It's better for you. And don't worry, you can make tawbah and join the main path later on to take you that way. And when you go, you realize the shaitan betrayed you and took you on another path. And only with tawbah and turning to Allah, you go back again. <inaudible> we need it all day, every day. That's why we make this dua all day, every day. <inaudible> and also from the things that take you away from the path are your desires and the falling into the haram, opening the curtains. Your heart warns you. When you're naturally practicing Islam, when you're in your natural state of fitrah, your heart tells you, be careful. Be careful, this is not right. Now I'm not saying that your heart is the only thing that tells you. The first thing that told you was what? The Quran at the gate. The Quran told you it was wrong. But your heart reminds you. But if you keep on ignoring your heart, it will become like the alarm clock that you keep on ignoring in the morning. It's off, it's off and then you don't hear it anymore. You'll stop hearing your heart. But once your heart is natural in its place of worshiping Allah and sensitive to the laws and commands of Allah, even your heart will warn you before you fall into the haram. Even your heart will warn you. So you follow this straight path. And the objective on this straight path is not to reach the end in this dunya. But the objective is to die while being on this straight path. 
And that is why up until the moment that you die, you keep on saying, إِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ Because my destination does not lie in this dunya. The end of this path does not lie in this dunya. So my objective is to die on the path, not to reach a particular destination in this life. So now we've had the path in a general sense. But Allah then explains and describes the path to us. He gives us a description of the path that will further explain to us what it is that we're asking Allah for. اِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ صِرَاطَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ غَيْرِ الْمَغْضُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا الضَّالِينَ Guide us to the straight path. The path of those you bestowed your favor upon. In reality, Iman and Islam are a favor from Allah. وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ حَبَّبَ إِلَيْكُمُ الْإِيمَانِ وَزَيَّنَهُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ وَكَرَّهَ إِلَيْكُمُ الْكُفْرَ وَالْفُسُوقَ وَالْعِسْيَانِ أُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الرَّاشِدُونَ فَضْلًا مِّنَ اللَّهِ وَنِعْمَةِ وَاللَّهُ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ Allah made you love Iman and He made it beautiful to you and He made you hate He made you hate disbelief and defiance and disobedience, they are the rightly guided as a grace from Allah and a favor. Your iman is a favor from Allah and ni'mah from Allah. So everyone walking on that path is not on that path because they deserve it. They are on that path because Allah gave them a favor, something extra, a blessing on top of what they deserve. He gave them a favor. Everyone on that path is someone that Allah gave a favor to. And Allah in another part of the Quran describes who they are. And this is an example of tafsir al-Qur'ani bil-Qur'an. Making tafsir of the Quran with the Quran. Making tafsir of the Quran using, using the Quran. It is they who will be along with the people that Allah bestowed his favor upon. From An-Nabiyeen, the prophets, Was-Siddiqeen, and the truthful people like Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, and like Maryam as-Siddiqah, Radiallahu anhum ajma'een, and the shuhada, the martyrs, like Umar ibn al-Khattab, and Uthman ibn Affan, and Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu anhum, like when the Prophet ﷺ climbed the mountain of Uhud and he said, Be silent, O Uhud. There is no one upon you except for a Nabi and a Siddiq and two martyrs. And he was climbing with Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman. He said, Be silent, O Uhud. There is nobody on you apart from a Prophet and a Siddiq and two martyrs. And the Siddiqeen and the Shuhada and the Salihin and the righteous, like the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, the only people, along with those mentioned in the stories of the Quran, who we have a guarantee from Allah that they were righteous. And let me ask you a question. Does any of you have a guarantee from Allah that you're righteous? Do I have a guarantee from Allah that I'm righteous? Nothing. 
I have only hopes, that's it. Amal, that's it. <laughs> you know, hopes, that's it. I have no guarantee from Allah Azza wa Jal that Allah accepted from me, that Allah considered me to be among the righteous. Nothing. The Sahaba were told by Allah, رضي الله عنهم وردوا عن Allah is pleased with them and they are pleased with him. And Allah said, وَكُلًّا وَعِدَ اللَّهُ الْحُسْنَى All of them Allah promised paradise. They have that guarantee. So if you want to know who is on the Sirat al-Mustaqeem, the Nabiyyin, and so you follow them, and the Siddiqeen, we gave the example of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, we said that Allah said about Maryam in the Quran, that she was a Siddiqa. We have the Shuhada, those who Allah Azza wa Jal accepted, and again, Many people claim to die shaheed. Many people, it's claimed about them, they died shaheed. Fulan is shaheed, fulan is shaheed, shuhadan. But who has a guarantee from Allah? The likes of Umar and Uthman and Ali, a guarantee from Allah that Allah accepted their shahada, their martyrdom. And the salihin, who has a right? Who, who can say they're from the salihin? Except for the sahaba radiallahu anhu. So if you want to know who to follow to be on the Sirat al-Mustaqeem, you follow the Prophets and you follow the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and those righteous people that were mentioned in the Qur'an. They're your guides, that's who you follow, that's who you take your deen from because they are the ones who are on the Sirat al-Mustaqeem. So now we have understood through the Qur'an who to follow in order to worship Allah. In other words, the only way to worship Allah properly is to follow the way of the prophets and the messengers, specifically our messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and to follow the Sahaba radiallahu anhum who are the Siddiqeen and the Shuhada and the Salihin by the text of the Quran. That's the only way. That's the only way to be on the straight path. And whoever follows other than them, wallah, they are not upon the straight path. They are either from Al-Maghdubi alayhim or Al-Dalim. So who are Al-Maghdubi alayhim and who are Al-Dalim to conclude? Al-Maghdubi alayhim, Maghdub comes from Ghadab, which means anger. And Maghdub is someone that someone is angry with. Someone that someone else is angry with. That person is Maghdub. So here, it is someone that Allah is angry with. That's the linguistic meaning. Al-Maghdubi alayhim. So we ask Allah, Oh Allah, don't put us on the path. Put us on the path of the Prophets. Put us on the path of the Siddiqeen, the Shuhada, the Salihin. Don't put us on the path of the people you are angry with. Nor the people who are astray. The Prophet gave a tafsir of this that the Jews are al-maghdubi alayhim by the text of the Prophet by the nas from the Prophet that the Jews are al-maghdubi alayhim and that the Christians are al-dalim but here there's a question we know that it's not only the Jews and the Christians and the reason we know this is first of all that this غير المغضوب عليهم والضالين covers everyone who is not on the path. And we know that there are many, many, many other groups, religions, belief systems that are not on the path. 
with, uh, alongside the Jews and the Christians. So what feature is it of the Jews that made the Prophet ﷺ say that they are a maghdubi alayhim? And what is the feature of the Christians that made the Prophet ﷺ say that they are a dhalim? The feature of the Jews that made the Prophet ﷺ say that they are a maghdubi alayhim is to know the truth, to have knowledge, but not to practice it. To know the truth, but not to implement what you know. And the feature of the Christians that made him highlight them is to be ignorant of the truth. In other words, what is the reason you are not on the Sirat al-Mustaqim? There are only two reasons that, you, that someone is not on the Sirat al-Mustaqim. Either they know that it's the Sirat al-Mustaqim, but they're out of their own desires and their own you know, stubbornness, they are not get, getting on the path. The other one has no idea which Sirat is Mustaqim. I don't know, is it this one or this one? That is ultimately the source of every misguidance and every evil. Is either a dhulmu wal jahl. It is oppression and ignorance. Oppression is like the scholars say, putting something in the wrong place. You know Islam is the truth and you choose not to implement it, not to act upon it, not to accept it. You are al-maghdubi alayhim, whatever religion you are. Atheist, Jewish, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever. If you know that Islam is the truth and you choose not to follow it, then you come under al-maghdubi alayhim. And it was characteristic of the Jews because the Jews of Medina knew the Prophet ﷺ was a prophet and openly made no secret of the fact that they knew that he was a prophet. But they chose not to become Muslim. As for the Christians, they were all over the place. They didn't know what was the truth, which one was the Sirat. And this is every kind of ignorant person. That's what ignorance does to you. You don't recognize the truth when it comes to you. And so we have to be careful of this. Why mention the Jews and the Christians? Why did the Prophet ﷺ not mention any other religion? Why not mention the Mushrikeen who are more misguided than the Jews and the Christians? Why, why mention them? Why not mention the Mushrikeen? Because of you, the danger of you following them. The danger with the Jews and the Christians is the Prophet ﷺ said, you will certainly follow the way of the people who came before you. The reason the Jews and Christians are highlighted here is not because of them, but because of you. Because of the danger of you falling into the same mistake. Because the Prophet told us, وسلم, you are going to follow the ways of the Jews and the Christians. You're going to follow the same way. You're going to follow them. And again, the meaning of Jews and Christians here to be clear, is not the followers of Musa who were truly following Musa or the followers of Isa that were truly following Isa because they were upon the Sirat al-Mustaqim ma'an with the Prophets. But it was those who attributed themselves to Musa. But in reality, they were gaining knowledge but not doing anything with it. They would have knowledge and do the opposite. And many examples from the Sunnah you can see of them coming to the Prophet where they had Huge amounts of knowledge. They had knowledge that the average people didn't have. But they didn't implement it. They didn't act upon it.
And the Christians, again, that were following Isa in his time, والسلام, they were upon the truth. But they deviated to the point where they no longer had any knowledge of what was right and what was wrong. When you asked Allah, اِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ صِرَاطَ الَّذِينَ نَعْمْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ غَيْرِ مَغْتُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا الضَّالِينَ Ameen. You asked Allah and Allah said, هَذَا لِعَبْدِي وَلِعَبْدِي مَا سَأَلْ This is for my servant and my servant will have what he asked for. We need Allah's guidance 24 hours a day, in every second, in every minute. If Allah leaves us for the blink of an eye, we'll lose ourselves. That's why we say, فَلَا تَكِلْنِي إِلَى نَفْسِي عَيْنِ Don't leave me to myself for the blink of an eye. We need Allah all the time. And that's why we ask Allah for His guidance to show us the right way, but not just to show us the right way, to give us the tawfiq to be able to follow the success, to be able to follow that right way by the permission of Allah And we say, Ameen. And Ameen, it means istajib, accept. And remember, that's the etiquette of dua. And we'll finish with this, that the etiquette of dua is you don't say, accept inshallah. Oh Allah, inshallah, accept it from me. You say it with conviction. Ameen. With conviction. Accept it from me. Because you cannot force Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept it from you. But at least you should ask as though you mean it. When you say inshallah with a dua, it's very common. We hear people say, oh brother, you know Allah bless you inshallah. Allah will give you inshallah. Allah guide you inshallah. The meaning of that in Arabic is that you don't really care whether Allah gives it or not. That's what the Arabic comes across as. Ali Allah, if you want to give him, give him. If you don't want to give him, don't give him. That's how it comes across in Arabic. So you don't say when you make dua, you don't have this kind of like shakiness, like inshallah, inshallah. You say, Ameen, accept it, O Allah. And you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept this dua that began with the praise of Allah and glorifying Allah, affirming your worship of Allah. That's tawassul through your good deeds, right? That is tawassul. We had tawassul through Allah's names and attributes. Then we had tawassul through your good deeds. Tawassul through your good deeds. And then you asked Allah to guide you. And then you asked Allah for the straight path, reminding yourself what that straight path is, who is upon it and who is not upon it. And asking Allah implicitly to save you from knowing something but not acting upon it and from being ignorant of the truth. And these are the sources of misguidance and the sources of evil among all of the people in this world. I'm going to conclude with just to recite to you, or just to read to you, sorry, what Sheikh bin Thaymeen said at the end of his tafsir of the surah. He said, in any case, this surah is a great one. It's not possible for me or for anyone else to gather together all of its meanings, its great and wonderful meanings. This is only a drop in the ocean. And whoever wants to expand upon it and to know more about it, then he must read the book Madarij al-Salikeen by Imam ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala. And in reality, I say to you that if that tafsir of Shaykh Nathameen was a drop in the ocean, then this of mine is like, I don't know, it's a drop of a drop. 
It's just a few points and a few little things for you to note and to think about. But otherwise, this surah is too great to explain it in three lessons or 30 lessons or 300 lessons. There is just too much. The whole of the Qur'an is here. All of the meanings, all of the benefits, everything is there. And there's too much to be able to explain, but it's just a little drop in the ocean just to give you something to reflect upon and to think about. Inshallah ta'ala, next lesson, we're going to be starting the Mu'awwidat. The three quls as people call them. And inshallah, we have to do a bit more because we have to do, you know, at least a couple of pages every day. So we're going to try to do, you know, perhaps six or seven of the, the last surahs of the Qur'an. If we can do ten, it would be excellent, but I'm not sure based on my current record that I'm going to manage that. But inshallah ta'ala, we'll do as much as we can. I believe we have to go a little slowly in the beginning just to get us into the topic. But as we go further, we can perhaps be a little bit, be a little bit quicker, inshallah ta'ala. And Allah is best. Last quick request. We have started uploading videos on a dedicated YouTube channel. I've never had it before. Um, I've never done that before. I've always used the Islamic centers. Uh, we used to use Kalima's YouTube channel, Jazamallah Khairan, and other people. But uh, I started using my own. It's, at the moment, it's just got the tafsir videos on. Uh, but you can find it on youtube.com forward slash Muhammad Tim. M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D-T-I-M. So do have a check. Check it out. And if you can subscribe and share it with people, inshallah ta'ala. And what we'll do is we'll upload this video. We do correct the videos when we upload them. So if you do want to listen to it again, the videos, if they have any errors or mistakes in as much as possible, I try to edit them out, inshallah. Barakallahu feekum and Allah Azza knows best. Wa salatu salam ala bin Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Jazakumullah khairan for watching. Please subscribe, share, and you can visit muhammadtim.com.